0: Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been Incredibly influential in human history, from the time we were hunter gatherers looking for fresh sources of water, to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities. Eventually, having plumbing, uh, the way that it changed sanitation, uh, irrigation, and what is the what's the future? Of water. Are we going to have enough of this stuff? How can we make more clean, fresh water? I just listened to a very interesting episode Alchemy, Turning Milk into Water, Sustainable Water Management. And this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water, coffee, industrial practices, sustainable value chain, and social responsibilities with uh, this man, Carlos uh, Gali, who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey, everybody, we're going to be learning a whole lot. This is a fun episode today. Uh, before we get into that, I wanted to plug a few dates. If you're listening to this immediately when it comes out, this week I will be in Little Rock, Arkansas for my very first time doing the Looney, Bins, doing the Looney Bin comedy club. And then I'll be in Texas uh, for three weeks doing the Hyenas comedy clubs in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Plano. I'll also be doing my psychedelic show, uh, which has been renamed to A Good Trip. And I'll be doing that in Austin um, on on February 21st, and then in Dallas on uh, on Sunday, February 28th. And uh, and and that's that's my most um, interesting, thought provoking show. I get I get um, a lot more science into that show and everything else. So fans of this podcast will like that show. No prior drug experience required. Um, and other than that, I have uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania coming up. I have a bunch of other dates that are borderline confirmed or, or already confirmed, but the links aren't up yet just yet, so I'm going to wait to announce those in the future. And um, it, just remember, uh, my stand-up pays for this podcast, so if you come and support my stand-up, you are supporting me and this podcast and also it's fun it's a fun show you like fun right of course you do so uh, so check that out and speaking of supporting the podcast don't forget to rate and review on iTunes there are so many more listeners to this podcast than there are reviews on iTunes so it would be wonderful if i got a few more of those it really encourages me keeps me going gives me the motivation to um to spend a bunch of time lining up such great guests and uh doing this research and everything else it's incredibly time consuming it's fulfilling as well but it does not hurt to get a little extra validation from you guys so if you can go on and review today stop putting it off i know you've been meaning to uh other than that you guys are wonderful um well also with that you guys are wonderful but uh, other than that we're about to get the show started so i hope you enjoy today's episode with james beck and i'll talk to you on the back end
1: are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at
0: all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i'm here at wichita state university i'm talking with assistant professor James Beck, uh, Assistant Professor of Biology. Uh, how are you doing today, James? Good, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks for joining me today. And thanks for coming out to see my show last night. Uh, yeah. It was an interesting one. Had yeah. a drunk person fall over during the <laughs> middle of the show. So you you got to see a little additional excitement. Yeah. Um, so you study a lot of... Uh, you study plants, yeah. mostly, correct? Yeah. Uh, plants are interesting to me uh, because... Um it really highlights this idea that intuitively a lot of people think that uh humans like won the evolutionary race and and we made it all the way to the top. And and uh yeah, if that were the case and if evolution had this one true correct direction, clearly everything would be evolving in that direction. And plants are some of the uh the oldest things, uh to exist on earth and, and, um, and they show the most diversity out of just about anything.
2: Well, so there, um, some groups of plants are, are, are relatively old. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the big, uh, like the big splashy group, the flowering plants are actually, are actually relatively young as far as, um, as far as life on earth goes. Mm. Um, one of the things we that I like to stress to students, uh, we I have a lecture in in, in uh, our survey course, our biology survey course, where we look at the history of life, and we 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 take pains to point out that that the history of of life on Earth, uh, almost all of it is our prokaryotes. Um, so you know organisms without without nuclei, and and then. Uh, even uh, most history is either prokaryotic or it's single-celled. So there's some um, uh, eukaryotes that are single-celled. In other words, it's microbiological, tiny little things. That's, yeah. that's most of the time depth of, of, of life on Earth. And
0: Like the first like three billion years or something like that? Yeah,
2: yeah, roughly, yeah, yeah. They, they go back about that far. Right. And then you've got um, uh, multicellular life showing up kind of in the middle of the party, and then you've got, um, you know, l- larger, you know, really multicellular, more complicated organisms showing up relatively late to the party. Um, and in a group like plants, um, a lot of the lineages that were around early in plant history are gone. Uh, and what, what we see, what's left, are these relatively recent bursts of diversity and I the see. flowering plants are the best example of that. Um, yeah, and so a lot of f- most major flowering plant lineages are actually relatively young, and even even the ferns. So, like, uh, my postdoc was studying ferns. One of my postdocs, people think of ferns as an old group, and it's true that some fern lineages are 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 really quite old. But mm. again. There's this huge burst of diversification relatively recently, even after flowering plants originated. So most fern lineages are actually pretty young, but there are those kind of oddball older lineages that are still hanging around.
0: Um, so what do you study specifically?
2: So the the questions in our lab um, usually involve there's, there's a couple big themes that we look at that are. Not exclusive to plants, but plants really do that do do it a lot. So odd, kind of odd stuff. So plants, um, I, well, those two big themes are asexuality
0: and polyploidy. So and what's uh, polyploidy? Uh, I know asexuality yeah. because I've tried it many times <laughs> after hard breakups. <laughs> It's, now never, see the, it's never really taken for me.
2: I'll, um, I'll uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, that's true. Um,
2: I thought you were getting it selfing there, which is another, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah.
0: Um, oh, that as well. That, but, that hasn't worked either.
2: So, yeah, so asexuality, yeah, we, we, we can get around to that. But polyploidy is having more than two sets of chromosomes in your cell. That's very unusual. It is in animals. mm But it's quite common in plants. And again, there's estimates as to how many species of plants are what we call neopolyploids, meaning like they they still have all those duplicated chromosomes in their cells. But it's now, I think, commonly accepted that all or nearly all plants have a polyploid ancestor. In other words, if you go far if you go far enough back in the tree on one of those branches there was a round of polyploidization and then they've um, through a variety of processes the, those duplicate sets of chromosomes have been lost and combined and stuff like that so polyploidy has been going on in in the plant tree of life since the beginning
0: what's but, the advantage of that
2: uh we don't it it's unclear whether polyploidy is is uh, uh, well, polyploidy has all kinds of uh, has all kinds of consequences, genomically and then phenotypically. It does things to the genome, and then that creates different phenotypes. And it, And at times those phenotypes can be adaptive. They can be good, or they can be they can at least provide an alternative to the diploid, the, the regular version. And that's actually one of the questions we ask in our lab is we like to look at species where where some but not all the individuals are polyploid. So we have two projects going in the lab now where, where each one of my students is looking at a particular species where there are diploids. So like you and me, they have two sets of chromosomes. And then there are polyploids that either have in – the, in, in the case of both of these studies – there are tetraploids, so four. You know, they've just doubled their genome, mm-hmm. and then hexaploids. So they've added an, a, They've added two extra sets, so they're now six six times instead mm-hmm. of two times. Um, and we ask questions like, where Where do you find are Are these cytotypes? Are they all everywhere? Are they just randomly distributed? Or if you look at a big range of a plant, are some of these cytotypes only in certain places, which would suggest that maybe the tetraploid version is better at being in drier areas than the diploid or the, or the hexaploid. Hmm. And so in those cases, you could argue that in certain environments, that different direction that polyploidy has pushed that plant is adaptive in that environment. You know, it 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 made you better at being in colder or drier areas, and in both cases, it's pretty dramatic. These cytotypes, these different versions, two X, four X, six X, are in different places. They they, they almost kind of divide the range of these plants into different portions.
1: Hmm. So it
2: allows this species to have a big range, um, whereas in reality, what you've got are these different versions of it that are kind of combined. It looks like it has a big range, but really, it's like an aggregation of a bunch of different
0: things. Hmm. So, so back in back in like the uh, the um, origins of evolutionary study, when um, like was it Mendel? I was doing the the peas. Yeah. Uh, so, are, are those diploid?
2: Uh, I don't know. I I think that 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 species he was working on are and i don't i don't think polyploidy was widely recognized until people started being able to look at um what well, to, to 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 look at assess the number of chromosomes that were in a cell so that would have been about about uh, so he was working in the what early to mid 19th century and then late 19th century people started doing chromosome techniques Squashing, like staining and like mashing cells and staining them and being able to see what the chromosomes look like and count them. And we actually do some of that in in the lab. Uh. So it was after him when people started to be able to do that. That's actually a good question. I would—I'd never really thought about.
0: Well, it's just because the diploid seems like it would be an easier thing to kind of—I uh, don't know if you'd say—discover that that. Um, it's a better of, system. The idea of inheritance, where yeah. where you take a smooth pea and a wrinkled pea and you crossbreed them and and see what happens, and that's kind of how how he um, started learning kind of the foundations of evolutionary theory, right? That's
2: absolutely 100% correct. That the the diploid forms are more they're easier to use. They're they're simpler. Um, uh and and that and today and th- that even applies today. People are when now that we're able to sequence entire genomes and analyze them and try to figure out, you know, we're trying to make a better strawberry or try to make a better um wheat or corn. One of the big challenges in that is that most things we eat, most of the crop species that we rely on are polyploids. So strawberry, for instance, I believe is an octoploid. It has eight sets of chromosomes instead of two. So people who are trying to figure out, hey, how do we make a better strawberry? So let's try to find the the locus or loci that controls sugar content or fruit size or cold hardiness. That's a lot more complicated. To the, the ways you get at that is really complicated. If it's if you're looking at something that has eight, right? It's like a needle in a haystack. It's a bigger haystack, but if you have a a, a diploid version, that's
0: it helps. Right. What What, what do you think about all the, the? There's a lot of fear these days about the genetically modified foods. Can you Can you explain what's uh, going on? At, I,
2: with, uh, to people, so I'm going uh, to, with the caveat that I am not, I'm certainly not up on my science and environmental policy, right? Um, but what, but what I, what I, what I, what I understand? Well, I, I know that there is zero evidence that, um, that GMOs per se have have. Negative health benefits for people, um, you know eating GMO wheat is not going to give you cancer or give your kids autism or anything like that right, that's right. i mean they've there's actually a lot of extremely good evidence that that 's simply not the case um, there are however there are environmental concerns with using genetically modified organisms um, when we start altering dramatically altering the you know the way plants look and what they're, what they're able to do, like giving them, for instance, resistance to pest to herbicides. Right. And all of a sudden that escapes to organisms that we don't intend it, that resistance to be in, that creates an environmental problem. So GMOs are not, I'm not here to say that GMOs are like free of problems and we should just absolutely just go, you know, crazy and just use as many and not think about it. Because I think there are real environmental concerns, but I think that the human health concerns are, I think, just people have a fear of of new stuff. You know, they think if something is not natural, right, it's fine. You know, like they, it's the kind of people who who are like. I can smoke all the pot I want because pot is a plant, you know, and it yeah. grows in the ground. You've heard people say those right. exact same words that if it's natural, so that's
0: not true. That's what you're I mean. Talking. I don't know. <laughs> I,
2: I, I don't know if that's been studied, you know. But, but, I, but the kind of logic that if something is natural, it right. can't hurt you. But if something is not natural, it has to be dangerous.
0: Right, right, right. And it, well, and everything is genetically modified. Yeah. of course. And this isn't. I mean, I think people have this idea in their head of like mad scientist and, and you know if, if you get real out there in the conspiracies that are like trying to uh, you know uh l- limit the world population or whatever uh, whatever else it might be but but this is something that farmers have been doing since yeah uh, since long before even yep. the uh, agricultural uh revolution yeah back in hunter-gatherers are probably doing Similar things, right?
2: People have been people have been uh, exerting dramatic control and change on organisms that they've domesticated, just simply by domesticating them, mm. um, and they've been crossing dramatically different forms of the same species to try to get, um, you know, a, a plant or an animal that was more cold tolerant or produced more offspring. So, yeah, we've dramatically genetically modified. Organisms, throughout history, it's just been people are more comfortable when it's selective breeding rather than somebody with like a gene gun, you know, like you know, or you know, yeah, I mean, you know,
0: gene gun does sound a little scary.
2: I, you know, I think it's old technology, but but initially, I think there really, I think it was called biolistics or something. There were people were inserting genetic material in organisms like with. You know, it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like a bullet, but it was a similar kind of idea. They were firing pellets. You know, this is something I would definitely want to Google here in a second. But, <laughs> yeah, I, but I like literally, I think I think maybe like a decade ago when people were first started to really, really, really get into this stuff, yeah, people were using gene guns. But that freaks people out,
0: right? Um, it, um, how, how do you think that? Um, uh, I'm worried I'm getting kind of outside of your area a little bit here. So you, you can reel me in if need be. But um, how do you think that the, the way that modern farming and agriculture is kind of changing the environment and changing the amount of plant diversity? It, is that too broad of a question? or uh, <laughs> It might be. It, it, I, I'm
2: probably going to...
0: You can p- take a pass I, on that.
2: I'm going to pass for, right. for, for 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 two reasons. One, because it, it is outside of my field, and also right, because right. Um, my dad is a retired farmer, and so like I I I, I want to be I want to. That's two reasons to tread carefully there. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Did you not learn anything from anyone who listens to this podcast? I yeah. got you. Uh, how about this? Can you explain to me how asexuality works in plants?
2: So um, there. There's two main forms of asexuality. One is quite common. So vegetative reproduction, like strawberries, are a great example. Anyone's ever grown strawberries, they, they 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 form these runners that run across the top of the ground, and if you cut one of those, you know you have a new plant, you have a new individual plant. If those get disrupted, um, lots of plants have have um, these vegetative propagules. You can simply take a piece of the plant, plant it, you know, in another place. And you have a you have a new individual you know it it's
0: yeah so that's most people know about this because of marijuana actually <laughs> yeah.
2: so that's that's common vegetative reproduction is is a common form of of asexual reproduction, but most people who study asexuality kind of um that's, that's considered kind of uh very different than than forms of asexual reproduction that involve um uh actual uh the formation of a seed without the, the fusion of gametes. And that's probably, in flowering plants, that, that's the simplest way to put it. A, that asexual reproduction is when you get a seed with no syngamy, no fusion of sperm and egg. Okay. Um, and long story short, that just usually involves um, th- the the formation and maturation of a diploid, um, female side of things, the egg side of things. It doesn't need that half of the genome from dad. The female side just, just is diploid or never was reduced to haploid and then just matures directly. So you get that you, you get the formation of a diploid seed, which, which then is a diploid embryo and then a diploid adult plant without that fusion of gametes, without the half of the genome from dad coming in. And that that usually... Usually involves some type of tricked-out meiosis. So instead of normal, me- so um, I I'll just summarize it by saying you know normally meiosis is you know involves I'm um, going from the diploid the two n number to n and there's a variety of ways that asexual plants have cheated by like skipping steps inside meiosis or adding steps to kind of go through that process but never. Reduce your chromosome number, so instead of having an egg, a plant egg that is normally haploid n, and it needs the sperm to come in to be two n, it never, you know, it's two n to start with.
0: Hmm.
2: I mean, one way to do it is to like before you go into meiosis, double or double the genome content, so then you go four, then you're four n in going into it, and then you go through meiosis normally. But you you've halved your chromosome number, but you're just back to where you started. So that's what I mean by tricked How do they out. Do that? that is a big question. Like that's, I mean, we um, these types of modified meiosis are are, are, are known are, are quite well known functionally. Like we can observe them, we can do these chromosome techniques, and we can see it happen. But the genetic control of that is something we're only really starting to learn about what 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 are the genes that that cause that take you from a regular meiosis to modified to a modified tricked out different meiosis like that and that that's a big deal because you can imagine if you could control like if you could make a plant asexual that's a big deal in agribusiness because Let's say you have this species that's sexual. You needs it needs sperm and egg. You need to have you need, you need to have lots of plants in a the field that need to be pollinated. That's a pain in the butt, really.
0: Yeah, I, I've heard of uh, of plans to make like um, robot bees yeah. because of like you know, yeah. bee, uh, problems with bee populations yeah. and stuff. And obviously, you still need to pollinate these things. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I was going to ask why why isn't asexuality more abundant? because it seems so. I mean, I'm sure you could talk to many ladies who would tell you <laughs> that life would be a lot easier without having to mess around with the sperm yeah. stuff um so so, why isn't that more abundant in in uh, in plant life?
2: So we would think asexuality would 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 just be everywhere because first of all, in asexual species, everyone makes offspring. Whereas in sexual species, it's only it's only females, Mm. or in most plants, I mean they're both male and female at the same time. But let's just say in in the organisms we're familiar with, only moms can make babies. But in asexual species, moms and well, there is no mom and dad, and everyone makes babies. So just there's this huge demographic advantage. You can just the population, you know, the ability to grow in size, you know, numerically. Is is much? um, It's a much that that would happen faster in asexual organisms. Plus, you don't have to go to all this trouble of making flowers. You know, you can reproduce even if you're the only one out there. There's just a whole lot of reasons we would expect it, as you say, to be the to be dominant. But the short answer is, there's probably not one reason that sexuality dominates. Um, But we think that. It fundamentally has to do with the fact that sexuality creates the opportunity to shuffle the genetic deck right, and if you can't do that, um, you're left with a, only a handful of or a set number of genotypes because you can't there's no recombination there's no effective recombination you know you, during meiosis you don't you don't get um, you don't get bits of one chromosome moved to the other you, and you don't unite different genomes with sperm and egg. So, so both of those processes shuffle the deck. And so in sexual species, you have this array of genotypes. Whereas in asexual species, you have basically what you started with. And some environmental challenge comes along, pathogen, predator, environmental change, climate change. And if you're asexual, if one of those genotypes is it works, fine. But if they don't, you're shit out of luck. But right. in sexual species, you have the chance to to adapt. You have right. a much stronger ability to adapt.
0: Right, if there's some new parasite or something like that that moves in. So
2: that, you know, it's amazing. Like, you can list like a hundred reasons, not a hundred, but a bunch of reasons that asexuality seems like the way to go. But we think that that inability to shuffle that genetic deck and be prepared or, I don't want. To be prepared is the wrong way to put it but the ability to adapt when change comes overrides all of those other reasons that's that's like the that's the that's the that's just way too important
0: right yeah it's interesting that if you were to say evolution had some sort of direction you know which, which you wouldn't really say that, but 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 it would definitely be toward variety and kind of um Flexibility and, and having um, just an abundance of of different types of of things like there there's a, a, you know evolution's not putting its eggs in one basket
2: yeah that's you know um, the organisms live in a constantly changing environment and that's and and, and if you're a, if you're a species if you're a lineage um, if you're gonna if if, if you're gonna persist you have to be ready for that environment to, to change, or you have to be able... I don't Again, I don't, evolutionary biologists, we don't like to use the word be ready right, or be right, prepared, right. but when that changes, you either are prepared or you're not. Right. Uh, but the flip side of the coin is, when we talk about the dominance of sexuality, we're talking about eukaryotes, or well, I should say multicellular organisms. But I think, it's my understanding, that the, the majority, perhaps the vast majority, of single-celled organisms certainly single-celled prokaryotes produce asexually so it's really just yeah so that's a real caveat there mm. asexuality is rare if you ignore prokaryotes but okay. in organisms that are multicellular and like us sexuality is really the va- it's really dominant
0: And, um, speaking of anthropomorphizing, do you say anthropomorphizing when you're talking about plants still, or is there a different word for it? You mean like, like kind of projecting, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People still use that term. And, and when, when you talk about plants, do you, um, do you use the word behavior? Do you talk in terms of behavior? Uh, Like, you know, uh a seed going dormant or whatever in these triggers?
2: I don't don't know if... I would say that that plant ecologists, which are probably more likely to discuss stuff like that, I don't think they use the term behavior, but they would not disagree... I think I got that right. right. That plants do have behavior most of the time as botanists we think of it as happening over longer time scales mm-hmm. so if, so if you think about there's all these really cool videos um where they it's it's time lapse so they'll take uh they'll film an individual plant over a growing season and watch it grow and explore its environment and yeah. get
0: bigger you could see stuff like this on like life on uh, on netflix yeah. Uh, yeah there there's a there's a plant episode or there's a it's a really good documentary. Um, what plants talk about, or so, something like that. Yeah. Um, but so, I, so, so I, I that's I think behavior. Are pretty familiar with uh, time lapse. Yeah. Um, do you do any time lapse stuff? In your I don't. Life? Yeah. Uh, I'm
2: actually a, just a horrible still photographer. So the idea of me ta- <laughs> you know, doing anything complicated, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's amazing when you see that time lapse yep. stuff because um, uh, it it does certainly look like some plants like. Actually, are like climbing up yeah. trees, sort of, and and there's uh, um, just uh, I mean, and now I have all these pictures flashing through my head of all uh, all this, uh, um, uh, you know, like the Venus flytrap, yeah, or, or or whatever else. But but it's interesting that plants have all of these mechanisms that um that it almost does seem like a mind when you look at it in a certain way that like uh, an animal can eat a plant and then which Causes that plant to release a signal. Yeah. To or you know, a pest might eat a plant, and and the plant releases a, a chemical signal. Yeah. That that calls for another thing that is the predator of the thing that's eating it. Yeah. To to protect it and
2: um, they yeah they they plants secrete there's a lot of plants that secrete chemicals um in their like their or the, their leaves contain the the vegetation contains chemicals that they. In a sense, poison. I don't. It's the wrong word to use. But these chemicals are in the soil in areas where that leaf litter drops, um, or they exude some of these compounds, and that keeps other plants from growing close to them. So they, in a way, they compete with with other plants for that space. And all plants compete for sunlight. So um, that's that's another obvious form of, of competition. Yeah. So so they're doing all these things, but they're doing it in a, over a time scale that we're not familiar with and in ways that we're not familiar with it. so they don't they're not they're not vocalizing, but they they communicate through 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 chemicals.
0: Right. It's interesting that time is kind of measured by life and by lifespans because you know we think of like a hundred years as being... A long time but uh it, you know it, that would be a very full life but to like something like a mayfly that lives for like four days yeah that's still a full life to it i mean if, if you could talk to a mayfly and be like you know would you want to live for 10 more days yeah. be like 10 more days yeah. what would i do with yeah. that time you know and um and then there's plants that live for hundreds of years yeah. Um so how did you get it at, you said your dad was a farmer Yeah. is that is that kind of is that what initially sparked your interest in
2: I, I think that kind of lay <laughs> dormant that the plant stuff lay dormant so believe it or not when I went to college it was a
0: seed that took a long yeah, time yeah, to yeah yeah <laughs> to, to be cued by other environmental triggers
2: This is something I've thought about a lot and it's I don't know it, it had to have something to do with it so when I went to college I went to Eastern Kentucky University and I went there. I was pretty passive about what I wanted to do, um, but I had some sense that I wanted to be a police officer. Believe it or not, and I think that was largely just because I thought that I thought that service dogs, like canine cops and people who like seeing eye dogs and police dogs, were like the coolest. I still think they're the coolest things. I mean, go out and try to find me someone who doesn't think that a seeing eye dog or a police dog is just awesome. Like, yeah. Try to find go try to find me one person who doesn't like those. I mean, it's just not possible. They're awesome. So I wanted yeah. to be a canine cop. I think in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. I went to college. I was a police administration major, and the first semester there, two things happened. First of which, I took zoology, so just the big survey of of animal diversity as uh, as a as a, a non major course to fulfill my science requirement. And I was I was just I was just like knocked on my ass by that course. It was awesome, the diversity, just the idea that it was all that was all the result of evolutionary history that was i I was fascinated by that and then i and then I had a professor that that told me, Hey, you can always be a cop if you want, but why don't you get a a a liberal arts degree instead so You don't have to be a police administration major to be a cop. You can be an English major or a biology major, or whatever. You know, they'll be perfectly happy to have someone with a bachelor's degree. You know, so uh, he he convinced me to switch to a more kind of, I guess, less applied subject. So then I was a wild. So I decided. All right, I I went to kind of. I met it halfway in the middle. I was a wildlife management major, Hmm. and I did that allowed me to take all the cool plant and animal classes. Um and then at the very end like my senior year I finally switched to biology. So I was kind of moving away from that more applied stuff to the kind of more liberal arts stuff the whole time. But somewhere in the middle there I took a plants course. This is to finally answer your question.
0: Oh, you're fine.
2: And it was it was it was it was plant systematics. You can see that blue book there on the very end there plant systematics. Mm-hmm. That was the book. That was the book that I that I was that that I took that course from a guy named Ron Jones. And plant systematics is kind of the plant version of zoology. It's a survey of diversity. Mm. Um, and so I already knew I liked biological diversity. But when I took that course I realized that that for some reason plants scratched that itch. I I thought they were they were they were more compelling. And part of it was the diversity. There were a lot of them. But I also was attracted to the idea that they were organisms that stayed in one place that you could study and find. You know, there's just something I like about the aesthetics of plants. Like I can take, like right now, if I want to go take someone and show, like if I wanted to take you and go show you a study organism, any of the organisms that my students study, we could go do that. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't need to, we don't need to radio track anything or like try to put out traps to catch it or whatever. We can okay. go. The organisms are there. We can observe them. We can study them. We can take tissue off them to do DNA work. You can do all that with other organisms, but it's
0: and peta's not getting in your business either. No,
2: exactly. <laughs> that, that's a huge deal. Like if yeah. you, I can't, I can't stress enough how my colleagues who study vertebrates, right, the links they go to to do it right, um, to keep you know these animals if, if they do any kind of experimental work the the regulation that they have to go the the standards they have to meet are are hard to overstate right. and the money they have to spend to do that right um, these are things that we you know as as long as we're careful to to be conscious about rare species um, to not overcollect rare species um, and to get permission to collect and study on private lands or government lands or whatever that's all we really have to worry hmm. about. So it's just, it's access, it's property access and rare species. But outside of that, you can pretty much do what you want with plants. They also don't scream when they die, which is, is, (laughs) well, if they do, it's this chemical thing that we can't hear. (laughs) So plants don't scream when they die. (laughs) Uh,
0: That's interesting. Um, And uh, one, I'm I'm very happy you didn't go, uh, you know, the police route. Otherwise, if we ever did meet, it wouldn't be as friendly of a conversation. Did that?
2: by the way like that story you told the the portland main thing like oh yeah i mean
0: I, I tell a story on stage about driving onto a crime scene um while drunk and this was years ago and yes it did happen man. yeah it was uh yeah it was uh, i can't believe that they did not just they, they
2: just throw you in jail for that
0: yeah it was insane they just let me go uh, um Portland Maine is a very small town yeah. and uh, they don't get many murders there and so when it does happen it's all of the police uh, that are available are on that scene and they don't have time to um, yeah. to <laughs> mess around Plus, with like, drunk idiots driving Some dude is a crime scene.
2: Some dude is dead so none of those cops are going to they all want to no one's like i not I don't have time to mess with <laughs> yeah, the DUI yeah <laughs>
0: um yeah i I caught a real break on that um it, you know it's uh it, you talk about kind of um plants eventually grabbing you. it is interesting that humans have evolved to kind of be attracted to plants and and that we've evolved to um find plant life to be uh aesthetically appe- uh, appealing and um and, and we like the smell of it you know it's interesting you talk about plants screaming. Well, uh, like if you go and mow your lawn, and yeah. it smells good. That's yeah. actually plants yeah. screaming. Yeah, you're like, I mean, oh, it, that smells terrific. Yeah,
2: there's a lot of, yeah. That's it's nice to know, man. That that when we go in the field, you know, we we um you know even my colleagues that study insects, um, and the, the rules for studying invertebrates are largely like ours. They there's not a lot of there's the regulation isn't there that it is for vertebrates. So studying a beetle's is is way less um, restrictive than studying a mouse. Mm. Um, but even them, you know, I, I ask them, you know, they collect a beetle and insects, you know, well, beetles don't do a lot of, I guess, vocalization in the sense that we think of, but they make little buzzing sounds and whatnot, and like, you know, the, there is a certain toughness involved in taking a large beautiful organism and throwing it in in 70 alcohol you know <laughs> now I, I, I don't disapprove in any way like right, in right, fact right. in fact i i i'd you know no we have awesome. a lot of people like this on, yeah.
0: on, on the show of course but so. you have
2: to be tough like to 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 make specimens out of out of organisms
0: that move around and make noise and stuff like that. Especially when you have such an intimate relationship and you, and yeah. you know so much about yeah. them. Um, it, how do you think... Um, oh, man. It, it, again, you can feel free to reel me in. I'm, I'm getting away from your work. It's just something I'm interested in. Uh, j- just the idea of, of how humans got to understand plants before um so i mean there was uh, don't they call it uh, like the father of botany or something wasn't it some dude like two thousand years ago or something like that uh, mm. uh, it, it doesn't matter yeah um but but just this idea that that humans discovered you know even to know that you could eat a berry or something like yeah. that and to find which ones weren't poisonous yeah. or or you know i i uh I do a, a separate show about um, about psychedelics now. And I'm doing it tomorrow night, but but um, it, it's fascinating to me that you know humans came across tobacco, which I kind of get that you throw leaves in a fire and, yeah. and you catch a little buzz, boom, you discovered tobacco, and and uh, uh, same with like cocoa leaves. You know, I, I imagine they're just foragers yeah. were chewing on yeah. all sorts of stuff, and and I guess our primate ancestors were um kind of eating a lot more plants and yeah everything. and uh you know even alcohol that like you know this is stuff that's gone bad yeah and then that drinking. was a that
2: was a happy the world's greatest happy accident yeah <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But, but there there's a there's One particular kind of mushroom I just found out about where if you ingest it, it does nothing to you. But if you then collect your urine and drink it, you trip your balls up. Do you you know the trial and error that it would have to take? That sounds like.
2: I mean, that sounds like something that somebody did to someone else. Like, (laughs) they were at a party and, like. It's like, like. Dude, you should make Frank Frank drink your piss. Uh,
0: and then Frank's like, "Oh, you guys got to try That's this." It's awesome.
2: Well, yeah, the, the the I remember years ago, um I was working at the University of Tennessee Herbarium. A, a colleague of mine was he was going through some old literature, and these were old um these were old uh, f- fungal journals, you know, articles that people had written. And 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 he came across one and I don't remember the author or the species. But it was a guy, a straight-laced scientist. This would have been first half of the 20th century, you know, 30s, 40s. A guy who wrote an article about he took mushrooms, and I don't know what he took, but he had his wife with him, and he recorded the physiological um, – he recorded what he was feeling. He, right. um, she interviewed him. He wrote stuff down. But it was, it was really nerdy how he described – he was trying to be technical – and exacting about what he was
0: experiencing. Well, he's tripping his balls. Yeah. (laughs) And I think
2: at one point, like, I mean, it was all kinds of stuff. Uh, He was getting, he was sensitive to light, and then I think for a period he couldn't see or his vision was was really limited. But this wasn't a known, it either wasn't a known hallucinogen or it was a relative of a known hallucinogen. So the dude was taking a real risk. (laughs) Like he did, this was... It was science because no one had done this before or yeah. no one had documented what they were doing. So this guy was – he rolled the dice. But, this, but man, you could never get away with doing something like that oh, today. Oh, that was science back yeah. then. But what,
0: what's this do? Well, you're the scientist. You eat it. So he did it, yeah. <laughs> and you either die or get a Nobel Prize. Yep, yep. Um, uh, so before we start wrapping up because I want to talk a little bit more about your work, um, I have each one of my guests – Plug a nonprofit of their choice each week, and what is, uh, uh, what did you choose?
2: So I'm going to quickly uh, tap this, I'm going to tap this in here just to make sure I get the website right. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely.
2: So, what I would like to, to highlight today is um, the Expanding Your Horizons Network. Um, long story short, this is a national, I think, an international organization that is, its goal is to increase the participation of women in. STEM fields. I know about this because uh, my wife Mariah, who's a biochemist here, she's in the chemistry department um she she organizes a local expanding your horizons event here at Wichita State every year mm. and it's a Saturday where you I think they have like two hundred middle school girls it's focused on middle school girls. they come in and they do science they you know she has people here who do um, insect biology there's um, there's um, uh, there are anthropologists they do DNA extraction they get people from all over campus uh, and the idea is that um, is that one of the one of the things that's limiting female participation in science are lack of role models. This would happen for any kind of minority group. You know, lack of role models slows down, you know, the the kind of equalization of participation like that.
0: Oh, I, I mean, you don't need to... This is an issue for me, but, uh, I mean, there is an abundance of straight white dudes, dudes uh, on, yeah. <laughs> on yeah. this show, and, yeah. uh, and it's not for lack of me trying to... Uh, you know, find diversity in my guests and everything either, and it's just you know, um, it's it's unfortunate. Um,
2: so expanding your horizons. The um, uh, their website is um, www.eyhn.org. Eyhn.org. That's just expanding your horizons network.org. Uh, and there's a donate button right there. That's the national organization. Um, but yeah, if if you care about uh broadening participation in science and mathematics uh, particularly broadening the participation of women right this this these these folks are
0: on the front lines of that effort and we need a we need a diverse set of eyes on everything that we're trying to learn and understand as well so this is an important thing so everyone can go to the here we are website as well and you can find the link um, there and and um, it just uh, as we're wrapping up, I, I wanted to ask you, what are what are you working on now that you're excited about or, or what are you looking forward to?
2: So um, a lot of the projects in our lab currently involve doing DNA work with museum specimens. So these dried, I say plants don't scream when they die. When they die, we're pressing them in plant presses and we're making these dry, flat and dry specimens, archival specimens. Mm. And there's there's... There's hundreds of millions of these specimens worldwide. And what we've learned recently is that um, DNA, um, there is DNA degradation in these specimens as they're preserved and stored. But there's still plenty of DNA there. It's just chopped up into little bits. So these hundreds of millions of specimens, many of them are sources of DNA, they're samples. And so instead of me and my students spending all of my funding and all of our time going out and collecting as much fun as field work is. Mm -hmm. We don't have to spend our entire careers going to the same places that our, our predecessors did. We can use their specimens. They're expertly annotated. They're, they're records of a particular plant at a place at a time. And we can do genetic and increasingly genomic work. So full genome work with these, these herbarium specimens and if we can do that if we can fully leverage these specimens if we can extract dna from lots of them um and you don't really damage the specimen doing this and we can do genomic work so instead of looking at one or two places in the genome we can look at hundreds or thousands of places in the genome we can we can really accelerate our discovery so there's so many there's so many plant species out there uh, what, there's I mean the estimates vary, but there's at least half a million plant species. And it would just it would be our if we were trying to reconstruct the evolutionary relationships of all of those, you know, but among the whole plant tree of life. Mm-hmm. If we were just trying to do that and we just wanted one individual per species, just the, 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 the time it would take to get all of those and collect the same bits of information from them, it, it's extremely limiting. But if we can simply go to museums and extract DNA from from tissue that we already have, it, it can just greatly accelerate the rates of discovery in 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 botany.
0: This must be a pretty um, exciting time for your field with with all of the advancements in in technology and all the testing. Yeah. that you're able to do. How how has um how how has recent technology kind of changed um your field? So.
2: When I first started doing this in the mid-90s when I was um, – uh, actually late 90s when I first got into grad school, we were still doing what is now called first-generation sequencing, DNA sequencing. So you you have you, – you, you, you use PCR to get a bunch of copies of one place in the genome, and then you do a technique where you add some stuff to that, some fluorescent stuff to that, and then you get the sequence of it. You mm-hmm. see the A's, C's, G's, and T's of that. Um, and that's much faster than it would than than it was, you know, in the in the '80s when they were yeah. doing that with like X-ray sheets and stuff. But it was still pretty slow. But now we're doing what um, uh, people have called second generation or, or next generation sequencing, where you can simultaneously amplify and sequence millions of individual places in the genome more or less at the same time. Hmm. And so it's, it's accelerated the, the, the rates of data acquisition. It's hard to describe the, the how much faster it can be. And the beauty of these next-gen techniques is that the first step in almost all of them is taking uh, a genomic DNA, so you extract whole genomic DNA from whatever, a human or a plant or whatever, and then you cut it into a, a bunch of little pieces because that's the you need to chop it up into a bunch of little pieces to start this workflow to add stuff to it and then sequence all those little pieces. But what we but that's ex- that cutting it into a, a bunch of little pieces is exactly what happens when you make a plant specimen and put it in a and dry it and press it and put it in a cabinet for 50 years. The DNA gets cut into a million little pieces. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, that what that means we think what that means is that we can we can pair these n- next generation techniques with with if if we if we can even pair them with a fraction of the specimens that are in cabinets it'll it'll greatly accelerate what we can know about plant evolution plant diversity which has applications for 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 lots of stuff not just the Plants that we think are cool because they're cool, but plants that we eat, plants that we use to right. for building materials, for shelter, psychedelics. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I, to, to bring it around to your original question, in our lab we're, we're we're starting to try to push the boundaries a little bit with getting genomic DNA from museum specimens, mm. and that's that's the that's the direction that's the that's the direction our lab is taking that I'm most excited about.
0: Very cool. Well, thank you, James Beck, for being the guest on the Here We Are podcast. And thank you all for listening and being curious. And uh, we'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Thank you, guys, for listening. Next week on Here We Are, I'll be talking with uh, Evan Palmer at Wichita. We talk about video games and, and gamification um, of, of studies, essentially, uh, making making these scientific studies um, less less boring so that um, participants become more engaged and therefore the the um, the data becomes uh, more usable and valid and so uh, yeah re- really interesting we we talk about a variety of stuff I got a big tour of this lab I got to I got to drive a car simulator and and uh, see all sorts of really cool stuff. And so uh, make sure and tune in next week to Evan Palmer. You guys are terrific. Thank you for listening.
1: Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we called clubs (laughs) discotheques? (laughs) LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. (laughs) There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff.
2: (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Scarface, 22 to 45.
0: (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic?
1: (laughs) Devilishly handsome. Not even... Even a little bit Italian looking so get that out of your dumb brain <laughs> walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the yin yang twins <laughs> oh does he actually have a scar on his face fuck no why would he even why would you even ask that that's not important what's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine <laughs>